Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. We're wrapping up the 2023 JOSPT Insights year with an absolute gem of a two-part chat with physiotherapists and educators, Dr. Sam Bunsley from Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia, and Dr. J.P. Canero, Clinical Director at BodyLogic Physiotherapy in Perth, Australia. It's a masterclass that you truly won't want to miss. In today's part one, we're talking about the dominant narratives or understanding that patients have about pain, specifically osteoarthritis pain. Dr. Bunsley summarizes what we can learn from the research, and Dr. Canero explains how the research translates to practice with some compelling clinical examples from his own specialist physiotherapy practice. I really can't wait for you to listen and please remember to come back next week, some holiday listening, to catch part two of our chat. Okay, let's get into it. Dr. Sam Bunsley, Dr. JP Canero, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you, Claire. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to have you join me on the podcast and I'm so looking forward to talking about words and meanings of words and why they matter today. And I think folks will know that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, words can never hurt me. I think our listeners now will agree that our profession, musculoskeletal rehabilitation more broadly, medicine I think has moved on from that. And we do recognize that the words that we use with our patients and with our colleagues they really do matter. And you both have done plenty of work and continue to do plenty of work with different populations with musculoskeletal conditions to understand just how much the words we use make a difference to people's lives with musculoskeletal pain. So Sam, let's start with you. What are the dominant narratives or the ways that people understand osteoarthritis? And we're going to start with a focus on osteoarthritis today and broaden it to other musculoskeletal conditions. But let's start with the dominant ways that people understand knee pain. The, the narratives we use to talk about our health, we both, both shape and reflect what we think and do about our health. By providing people with alternative narratives, we can sort of change what people think and do about their health. Sun exposure can be a good example of this. So in recent years, we've really shifted away from that idea of healthy tan narrative towards a sun smart narrative. And that's really influenced behavior change too. So we, we see people, you know, in Australia, we've got slipping on a sun shirt, slopping on sunscreen and slapping on a hat. And we know that people who experience painful osteoarthritis, they move less. People who move less are participating less in, in family life and social and work activities. They experience poorer mental health and, and poorer overall health. But it doesn't have to be the case. So we know that people can be empowered with the, the knowledge, the skills, the resources that they need to live well with osteoarthritis, to be physically active, to participate in the things that are meaningful for them. Our group has been really interested in the narratives that people use to talk about osteoarthritis. And ultimately, we're wanting to make sure that people have access to an osteoarthritis narrative that's going to be helpful for them. So that promotes helpful beliefs and helpful behaviors. The, the dominant narrative that people use to talk about osteoarthritis is an impairment narrative. We did a systematic review. So we looked at all the studies that have been conducted around the world, uh, qualitative studies, 62 of them, I think we found, that had been investigating the experience of people with osteoarthritis, clinicians and their carers. These studies came from 16 countries around the world. 
And we analyzed the, the ways of talking in these studies. And so this is where we identified this, this dominant impairment narrative. People who, who use this narrative really talked about their bodies as machines. So they often drew on analogies like cars or engines to describe their joint changes. They talked about healthy joints as the well-oiled machine parts that glide smoothly over each other and compared this to joints that might have osteoarthritis where friction has sort of worn down the cartilage and causing those joints to sort of grind during movement. And they believed that this was the source of their pain. Continuing on from this, they sort of believed that bearing a load through a joint that sort of lacked that cushioning was perceived to be dangerous, just like it would be if you were driving a car that had worn out brake pads. And then the problem with a broken down or worn out machine part is that they're not something that can be modified by oneself. So they require an expert to service that machine and eventually pull out that worn out part and replace it with a new one. People spoke about the sense of inevitability that as, as a, like any machine, that, that joints would eventually wear out over time. So they felt it wasn't safe to use those joints, so they avoided the activities that, that were loading their joints, and they felt like non-surgical care wasn't going to help them, You know that this couldn't replace that lost cartilage, so they were really just waiting it out until they were either old enough or worn out enough to be offered a joint replacement. And it's such an interesting way of thinking about it because it's that whole sense of this is something that happens to me and I don't have control over, over it. And I wonder, JP, how this links with what you observe in the clinic. It really shapes how people understand their health and how they present for, for management. And that view that your body is breaking down and this this inevitable slippery slope. It's quite hard for some people. Some people tend to accept it in a way, and other people, it doesn't make sense to them, and they want to fight it. And that impairment narrative, it can be disabling not only for the patient, but also for the clinician. Because basically, you're dealing with a patient that has a condition that it doesn't matter really what you do. The joint will keep wearing down to a point where clinicians can often say, look, there's nothing more that I can do for you, and you just got to wait for the surgery. We know that the evidence is, is, is demonstrating that that's not the entire puzzle. That's a piece of the puzzle or how the structure of your body changes over time. You know, I saw a young 24-year-old last week who had been told that he's got early onset arthritis. And he said to me that that's very isolating because I talked to my friends who I used to play cricket a few months ago. And I tell them I have arthritis and they, and they, they then nicknamed him Nana because they only relate that diagnosis with their grandparents. And he said, I'm not ready to give up my activities. I don't, I, I can't do that. You know, so he is really uh, became isolated. He stopped going to work. He stopped engaging in any form of physical activity. When he does physical activity, he's really guarded. He's protecting his body. He's cautious about the movement and any sign of pain, as he's been instructed by some clinicians in the past, is, you know, you should listen to your body. So when you feel pain, you should stop. And that is really debilitating. And it turns out the story is quite different to that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I 
I live with post-traumatic osteoarthritis in my knee related to sports injuries. And I catch myself occasionally referring to my knee as my old lady knee. And I do wonder what that's doing either to my brain or to the brains of the people with whom I'm speaking. So Sam, I'm wondering, how does this narrative flip? Is it possible to flip and change the way that patients feel about their or describe what's going on with their knee or other musculoskeletal pain? Yeah, so look, in our in the study that I referred to earlier, we also identified an alternative way of talking about osteoarthritis. This was less dominant in the studies, but it still came through across you know, the spectrum of, of studies that we looked at. You know, we identified this alternative narrative that we call a participatory narrative. And we see this as a way that, you know, it does align more with what we know from the scientific evidence base and that it can really potentially promote those helpful beliefs and behaviors. People who sort of use this way of talking will often talk about their joints as being sort of more than just, you know, cartilage and bones, but they, they sort of talk about them as being more like structures that are cocooned in muscles. So whereas, you know, cartilage and bones are invisible, muscles are visible and they're, um, you know, they're under voluntary control. So this sense that people speak about, you know, by strengthening their muscles, that joints can also become stronger and healthier. And so in this way, people who, who who use this way of talking really thought of their joints as being healthy, regardless of what they look like on the inside. So regardless of the presence of osteoarthritis or age, they talked about their joints as healthy as long as they enabled them to do what they wanted to do. They really emphasized, again, what, what they were able to do rather than what they weren't able to do, rather than a sort of deficit view of their body, I guess. It was more of a, a strength-based view of their body. The clinicians who use this way of talking really positioned themselves as, as being a coach rather than being a fixer. So they saw their role as, as empowering people with osteoarthritis you know, with the knowledge, the skills and the resources that they needed to live well. But it was really emphasizing those modifiable aspects of an osteoarthritis experience that people could be empowered to, to have control over. It gives me a lovely lead into asking JP, how does this work in practice? How do you have these conversations with the people that you're working with and how do you choose the words to use with someone like me who thinks of their old lady knee and this worn out osteoarthritis knee? If we think of the impairment-based narrative, it really is focused on fixing impairments. So the, like, the clinician will look at the patient and identify the dysfunctions in the body that need to be managed to hold up that knee for a bit longer before you inevitably have the surgery. Whereas in this participatory narrative, the focus is not so much on the dysfunction of the body, but the focus is on what matters for the person. You know, what are their needs in the context of their life? What are their goals in terms of their functional goals and, and, and life goals in general? You know, for someone, it might be going back to playing cricket, like this young fellow that I mentioned. For someone else, he might be walking the, the Camino in Spain next year. So very different demand. And for someone else, it might be pushing their disabled child on a wheelchair. So they're very different demands. And that really puts me or puts the clinician in the shoes of the patient to understand their day to day. And if they see themselves as having a body that is deteriorating, that needs to be guarded, protected and avoided, that it distances themselves from, from those goals. And that's where a lot of distress and disability come into play. Instead of telling people that, look, there's a different way of looking at this, we get them to reflect as they're telling their story on the things that actually they do that are helpful or they're not helpful. So if I go back to that young fellow 
when you when you ask him, since he decided to stop going to work, stop socializing, stop going to the gym and doing physical activity in pro to save his joints in his 20s so he can enjoy life at his 30s, he actually got worse. The more he rested, the more he isolated himself, he got worse. So you ask him, so what are the things that actually that you do that made you feel, you feel better? Well, it was actually when I was going to the gym a bit, you know, sometimes it gets sore, but if I look back, I was feeling better. So what do you think that tells you? As a clinician, you are listening to the story and you're going, look, this is not making a lot. Well, it's making sense from this impairment understanding of your problem. But there are things that you're telling me that are a bit discrepant to that understanding. So you start making them reflect on that. And as people reflect on it, it's an active learning process. And they start going, oh, okay, I can, I can see the discrepancy here. And, but shouldn't I be protecting my knee? You know, isn't that the thing that, that I should be doing? I've been told, and that's a very common thing, I've been told that cartilage doesn't grow. There's nothing you can do about it. And you go, well, but if you, you know you have remaining cartilage, so what are you going to do about the remaining cartilage? Did you know that you can actually do things that improve the health of that cartilage? So kind of giving people this idea that your joint is not an isolated structure. I saw a, a lady in her 60s. She loves dancing ballet. She danced with a child, continued dancing through her life. She's been seen by, um, by a colleague, and she's improved, but she's really struggling still. And she came in to, to see me for a, for a second opinion. And, and you look at her problem. You know, she lost weight. She's being active. She's managing her sleep. She tried to say no to things to manage her stress. She does Pilates a couple of times a week. She's riding her bike. She does lots of really beautiful things, but she still has this pain in the knee. And when you look at her behavior, she's highly protective of the knee when she's not exercising. But she does the exercises, but she doesn't integrate that into her day-to-day life. And when I quiz her on why are you doing this, and she goes, well, I know exercise is good, but I need to protect my joints. And so she has a heart condition, right? And in her case, I say, how do you manage your heart? Did you go and see the surgeon and he told you to replace your heart? And she goes, no, no, he told me to manage my stress, to manage my lifestyle, to take some medication as I need. So I'm going, right, so you're telling me that you're managing your health and your heart is part of that health. So how is that different to your knee? Your knee is part of this organism that if you take care of this organism and you create an anti-inflammatory environment or a healthier environment, that joint will respond to it. And the healthy part of the cartilage that is still existing, and you know, patients will say, oh, but it's bone on bone. And it's really important that you show in the scan and you go, look, your scan is telling me that you've got cartilage left. And when it's really bone on bone, you can bend it. And I'll be the first person to tell you, look, you probably need to replace with me. But you can bend it, you can straighten it, you can move it, you can rotate it. So you have cartilage. You need to improve the health of this cartilage. And so taking that approach where, you know, moving on from my body is a broken machine, so my body is a garden that I can nourish, I can fertilize it, I can move the soil. It gives people this, this capacity to, to work on the modifiables. And for her, I didn't have to change much of her program, but I needed to have to see that for you, the biggest thing is integrating this understanding in your day-to-day life. 
and her exercises were actually looking at all the habits that she developed that she's walking but trying to put less weight on that leg. And when you go, look, let's put weight on that leg. When you're walking, I want you to think of your foot, not your knee. I want you to feel the same push through both feet. And, you know, how does this feel around your belly and your back? Oh, it feels more relaxed. Great. So can you walk faster? Oh, but, you know, I walk slower because I'm protecting my knee. And it's like, you know, have you, try, have you ever tried to drive a car with a handbrake on? You know, you can, but it doesn't drive very well and it complains very quickly. Your body is the same. So it's kind of like bringing this understanding the person's situation, understanding where they want to go, acknowledge how they understand their condition, and through the discrepancies of their understanding and the discrepancies of their behavior, this new narrative surges. And my job is to kind of go putting like these pieces together and then providing evidence to support and say, did you actually know that using your knee is really good for it? Did you actually know that if you modify these other factors, it's really important for you? And so that's when the education comes in. But they've done a lot of learning by the time you're educating them. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.